welcome to the UCLA Law Review's Dialectic Podcast. My name is Alyssa Sanderson, a third-year law student at UCLA and one of the dialectic editors for UCLA Law Review's Dialectic Podcast. And this is my co-host. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole Powell, third-year law student at UCLA Law and senior dialectic editor for the UCLA Law Review. Today, we're joined by UCLA Law professors Patrick Goodman and Pavel Wanzewicz. Professor Goodman teaches remedies, wills, and trusts and written legal analysis. Notably, Professor Goodman is the creator and co-developer of Law 101, Introduction to Legal Analysis, which introduces principles of sound legal analysis for incoming first-year students. Professor Wanzewicz is the director of UCLA School of Law's Academic Support Program and teaches Evidence and Constitutional Law 1. Both Professor Goodman and Wanzewicz are recipients of the UCLA Law's Distinguished Teaching Award, the highest teaching honor, honor at the university. Nicole and I certainly can vouch for their excellent teaching. We both have participated in the academic support program with Professor Goodman and Professor Wanzewicz, and it has greatly improved our exam-taking skills. Law school can seem overwhelming with the enormous amount of reading, cold calls, and the final exam that is worth your entire grade. We really hope that this episode dissects what's important and what's not that important when it comes to law school exams. Let's get into it. So tell us about yourself. Go ahead, Patrick. Okay. I, I know you like to talk about yourself, Patrick. You go sure. first. I'll go, I'll go first, only so that Pavel can decide what he wants to say. Um, so uh, so I, my name is Patrick Goodman. Uh, I teach in the academic support program at UCLA School of Law. And um, I've been teaching here for, I guess it's my 22nd year. So I taught LRW for eight years. And then I moved on to teaching um, wills and trusts and remedies and Law 101, and Writing for Practice, and Written Legal Analysis. So a, a bunch of courses, writing courses and bar courses. And um, yeah, I'm happy happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm Pavel Wansowitz. I've uh, been at UCLA now 14 and a half years. And uh, before that, I was at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And before that, Vermont Law School, and I was doing academic support as well as teaching other classes at, at both those schools. And uh, here at UCLA, I teach con law as well as evidence, as well as uh, running the academic support program. I think a lot of students, especially in academic support, look at both of you professors as people who have the skills and expertise on how to succeed in law school and just already have the skills down packed. But I know, Professor Goodman, in your experience, you talked a little bit about how law school is a struggle for you. So if both of you want to talk about what your law school experiences were like, I think that could make it feel a little bit more relatable um, and it could give some solace to students who might be struggling. Oh, sure. Since you mentioned my experience, I'll, I'll, I'll start. So, yeah, when, when I was a law student, I went into law school with no understanding of law school. Uh, I then that's basically because I didn't know a single lawyer and very few people in my family had, uh, and I'm talking about my very big extended family, very few of them had finished college. Most did not go to college. Um, and I, so everything was new, but I assumed that my reasonable success as an undergraduate would translate over and that I'd figure it out as I always had. And instead, I had this sinking feeling when I was there that everyone knew stuff I didn't know, such as that we had case books instead of textbooks or that you're supposed to, you know, I was, of course, going to work my summer because I needed to make money, but I didn't realize it was also resume builder time. Um, I didn't know that about Socratic method, you know, um, movies like Legally Blonde 
have kind of educated in some twisted way people. But before that, you know, I was in this kind of black hole where there was no big pop culture movie. So I really didn't quite know what law school was was like. And specifically, I didn't know what the exams were like. So I got all my cues on what you're supposed to do during the semester using my what I thought were pretty formidable skills as a student and really showed up at the final and was completely surprised at what I was asked to do and even more surprised by the very low grades that I got my first semester because I thought, well, okay, I guess these are strange finals, but I, I know how to write this. So I'd show off the law and I'd show off that I'd been to class and I'd show off that I knew the reading and um, and didn't do really any intensive factual legal analysis at all. And ironically did better on the classes where I was shakiest on the law because then I was talking more about the facts as a way to kind of filibuster when by accident, that's kind of what the professor wanted. So my grades were very poor my first semester and got worse the second semester uh, because my reaction to not getting the grades I wanted was to work harder doing the same things I'd done already. And then did more poorly my second semester, which created a real kind of crisis for me, like is law school for me kind of a crisis. And it wasn't until I got some help from an instructor who kind of talked to me about what professors are looking for and how to read cases that I was able to make an adjustment. And by my second year, I was doing pretty well. And by my third year, I got straight A's. I figured it out um, and was frustrated that I didn't know what I knew later earlier because it wasn't like it wasn't learnable. It's just no one had taught it to me and I didn't know to look for it. So that kind of got me going really in the academic support world because I kind of feel like a lot of law schools don't try to communicate legal analysis skills. They do a bit of a bait and switch. So a little bit about me. Yeah, very similar for me. Um, I'm, I'm a first-generation American. Both my parents were Polish immigrants. Both had eighth-grade educations. Both were janitors. And, and law school just felt overwhelming from the get-go. You can weave in imposter syndrome into my equation as well of what am I doing here next to them? Um, and, and, and that got to me. But much, much like Patrick described, for me, I, I was the casebook of false fluency. Uh, I, I could recite any rule, give me any rule. I, I could workhorse my way through that. But applying the rules, speaking the language, no, I, I, I realized I, I just thought the final exam would, would be, you know, throw out a lot of rules and say it's met. Um, and, and I would be blessed with A's, and I was not, um, you know, and, and, and like Patrick, uh, worst grades uh, I had ever received in my life, wild frustration of, of wait, I, I never worked this hard before, and I just got the worst results of my academic career. And, and so, yeah, there was a lot of self-diagnosis that, that had to happen uh, in my first year. I was lucky enough that later on down the line, I started as a research assistant to a professor and, and I, I just uh, started mimicking his mind as best as I was able to. And, and I started to appreciate what he did behind the podium and how he was testing. So yeah, very similar story. To both of your points, um, how do you kind of deal with receiving low grades? And then like, for example, for me, you know, my 1L year, I felt 
really horrible coming out of it. And 2L, I definitely did not want to speak to, you know, other 1Ls or other students about my grades um, until I was confident about, you know, myself and my abilities. How do you kind of get over it and become more confident to not only other students or your peers or whoever, but also to employers and professors and, and things like that? How do you deal with, you know, those feelings? Yeah, it, it, and it's really hard to, to look in the deep, dark, truthful mirror, especially when you're not sure what you should be looking for. Um, so it's, it's easy to say, well, self-diagnose. Um, that's what you would do if you were learning to play tennis. You would self-diagnose. You would, you know, watch, you know, uh, Nadal serve. And it, it, it's not that easy in law school. And, and so I, speaking for myself, felt very nervous about going to a professor and saying, hi, I underperformed. Tell me why. Um, I shouldn't have. Uh, you know, I ended up going to one professor, my friendliest professor, the one I had a rapport with or the best rapport with. And, and he was very helpful uh, in kind of helping me self-diagnose. But it, it really, for me, was about having the confidence that I was probably just a few degrees off. And, and over a long enough time, you're going to miss the bullseye if you're, if you're five degrees off. But five degrees isn't a lot. And, and I, I really had to correct this idea that, that Patrick alluded to of uh, I was writing down law, but not applying the facts. And, and I wasn't showing lawyerly analysis. And also, in my case, it came down to I wasn't reading particularly well. Uh, highlight the rule. Oh, there's the holding. They said we hold. I'm set. Um, and not reading the case like an advocate would. Um, the, the way of, of, of reading a case and saying, how would I use this if I were the prosecutor, if I were the criminal defense attorney? I, I wasn't doing that. And that's what finals were testing. So so that was the process for me. It, it was slow and, and, and it was difficult from, you know, a, a psychological perspective. But eventually I kind of geared myself up to kind of look in the mirror and, and see what I could do. Yeah, that's, um, I, I don't have much to add to that. Uh, I just want to emphasize, I agree with everything Professor Wantowitz was saying, and just to emphasize the need to get feedback, even when it's scary. You know, you, the, it's one of the things, the way the, these exams are frequently set up, where you have a, a big final at the end, is that you get the grade long after the class is over. And if the grade is good, you kind of want to just take it and go away. And if the grade is bad, you just kind of want to take it and go away and move on. And what you instead need to do, regardless of the grade you get, is wallow in it a little bit. There's not that many opportunities for feedback in law school. And um, when you get a grade, you know, it's, e again, easy for me to say, just like Professor Wanso is saying, but you really got to do it. Um, you've gone 99% of the way here. You come to law school. You've taken the class. You took the final. Just There's just one more step in this journey, which is now find out why you got the grade you got. And sometimes that involves doing a little bit of filtering, like your professors don't always speak a language that is useful for you. So you need to kind of listen to what they're saying, but realize that, you know, there's kind of three big buckets that student mistakes fall into. One is not, not processing the rules correctly. And that's the one that law students are really afraid of, but it's honestly mm -hmm. the one that I see the least of. Um, the other two are much more common. One of them is not being lawyerly, as Professor Wantwitz was saying, in your writing, you're spitting out rules and not actually 
arguing the application of law to fact to reach a conclusion, what some people call being conclusory, but that's a very kind of vague label. You know, it's really going out there making their arguments. And that's the most common one I see with law students. Um, and so, you know, is that what's happening? And the third one is just missing issues on the exam. Um, and if that's what's happening, um, and you're hearing your professor say that, you know, there's different ways to fix each of those. And, you know, real quickly, if you're getting the law wrong, um, which again, much more rare than you might think, but if that's what's happening, that's a process of working on your reading and outlining during the semester, but it's not an exam taking skill. The other two are exam taking skills. Um, it's learning how to, more than exam taking, it's advocacy skills. It's true in the true sense of the word. You know, learning to not be conclusory in your arguments and actually surfacing fact inferences and making them explicit to reach conclusions is something that actually most of us know how to do. We just don't know how to do it on a final for some reason, because we don't always expect the professor wants that. But there's a certain level of explicitness you need to be in your argument that students are really close. It's like Professor Watson, it's a slight adjustment. So is that you? And the third is, if you're missing issues, that's also exam taking. Are you reading the hypothetical closely enough? Are you rushing through? Are you doing, people think that you miss an issue because you don't know the issue. But it's quite rare for a student to actually not know the existence of an entire issue. And they may not know the rule so well, but it's, it's actual existence. More often, they've misread a fact. So you need to listen to what your professor's saying, but maybe translate it a little bit. And, you know, are you doing one of these three things? And the good news is that, yeah, these things are fixable. Almost everyone is close to succeeding at those. And um, yeah, so, so if you're grade, you know, going back to the question, if you're getting a grade that is bumming you out, which is like the story of most of us at law school, um, then, you know, the, recognize that this is a fixable issue if you confront it and not avoid it, but also recognize that it's not a self-worth thing. I mean, look at us sitting here saying, yeah, we just spent half of our law school getting really cruddy grades. And look, and I guess we, and here we are on the Zoom, you know, so as, as two professors. So uh, the stakes are a little bit less dire than you think they are. And the fix is a little easier than you think it is. And get help, right? If you're feeling like you're struggling and you're special in the sense that you feel like, no, there's something really wrong with what I'm doing in law school. It's unlikely to be true, but even if it is true, um, there are services and support where like, you know, we kind of did it in an ad hoc way. Um, you can get, you know, better support than we did and really make that adjustment. And we see improvement all the time, all the time. Both of you kind of spoke to the importance of thinking like an advocate or thinking like a lawyer in the way that you're responding to exam questions. But that is kind of a different way of thinking than we're used to in undergrad and in high school, graduate, other graduate programs. So I was wondering if there's any guidance you could share on how to transition our thinking before law school or if that's even possible or if you recommend any sort of practice or training that students can do as they prepare for law school. Well, a lot of, you know, a lot of um, the, a lot of undergrads kind of wonder what, what can I do to be successful in law school? And one of the choices they make is what to major in. And I know that's not quite your question, but if that was something that people are worried about, majors actually have very little correlation with success in law school. We're kind of starting over, as you were saying, Nicole. I mean, it's so, you know, admissions officers are looking for success in whatever it is that you thought was interesting. 
Um, and so, but what, so what else can you do besides stress out if you're not the right major, you know, because I, I know having taught LRW, a lot of the engineering science types worry that they're in the wrong, that they, that they have a, a disadvantage and they actually really, really don't. But the other thing is um, if you don't have access to kind of what's it like in law school, there's a lot of good resources out there. There's, there's books you can read that I, I recommend you don't get the big, huge encyclopedic books that really are trying to make a buck off of you. There's just too much to read in those books. And they're really micromanaging everything about law school in ways that create more myth and worry than anything else. What you want are, you know, kind of down, <clears throat> down and dirty, sip, simple summaries of what law students do, right? What does a case look like? What is uh, what what is outlining? What is, so there are some short books that are available that you that you know go to Amazon and look on the list. I think it does make sense before coming to law school, especially if you have no experience with law school. Just getting a quick kind of familiarity with what law students do. But once you're but but don't stress even if you don't do that. Once you're here, be very deliberate and go to professors early and go to upper class people early and ask them questions about what's going on. And most of all, think about what's on that final. It's never too early to think about that if that's the end result. So just looking at a database of final exams that aren't even your class's final exam, just to know like what is a final exam? So all you first semester people, like look at final exams and see what they are. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, what's that book? Uh, Cracking the Case Method? Yeah, that, uh, that's, that's a mighty good one um, by, by Professor Goodman et Thank al. You. Um, and, and seriously, a, a really well thought out and, and exactly what, what uh, Patrick's describing. Yeah, I mean, there are two things pre-law school you should think about, but not pressure yourself over. Uh, learn the architecture of a case. That's a nice thing to do, to, to be able to read a case and say, okay, I, I get what is building off of what i understand what a holding is when these facts and this law meet you get this result having a little bit of fluency in that is going to make you more efficient coming out of the gate um and, and i think that's really important but in terms of that i know i spent too much time on that i, I spent too much time worrying about the architecture of a case and and lost track of the fact that I had to be an advocate, just like on you know those closing arguments on law and order, um, and and so I, I think not losing sight of the fact that you are going to have to prove an argument on your final exam is also something to to think about uh, before law school. So reverse engineering and and knowing what a law school exam is like will help you once the semester starts. It's it's something Patrick and I try to stress in Law 101, uh, our, our introduction to law case uh, course, where we want you to know the architecture, but we also want you to know how to use the architecture. So doing those two things, even just a little bit, has some value coming in the door. Okay, so now we're one else, and we really want to maximize success early on, but like, Say, for example, we're not up on all our reading. How do we approach professors with, you know, just trying to check in to see if we're doing right and what we can do early on? And and personally, I wouldn't recommend talking to other one else sometimes, but you know, 
transitioning into that super competitive environment and where everyone's kind of trying to figure it out, especially one all year is really difficult. At least it was in my case. And, you know, Nicole and I were on Zoom, so it was a little bit different. But do you have any questions in mind that you can, you know, talk to your professors or two L's and three L's about? Um, well, questions you can ask them. Uh, I, I would keep it open-ended, you know, like I think go, you don't want to fall into the trap where you're looking for that magical checklist of things to do. Um, you want to keep it super simple so that even before you're even asking people, you want to at least understand, I mean, this is what Pavel was just talking about before, that it's really argument school. It's not really law school. You're being evaluated on argument. And that's something I would have loved so if someone could have pulled me aside and told me early on. Uh, but I don't think a lot of second and third years even kind of think about it that way. But with the benefit of some hindsight and grading a lot of exams and looking at other professors' exams, I see that that's really what it is. It's a, it's a skills school. It's not a doctrinal school. So people are coming from backgrounds where they're learning subjects. And you can be forgiven for thinking that you're learning the subject of law. <clears throat> but the subject of law is easily learned, right? It's the, it's the skill of advocacy that you're learning. It's the process that you're, that you're really learning. So, you know, you can ask second and third years about when they do readings, like how do they read? What do they do? And you might get a good answer. You might not. It depends on who you ask, right? So, you know, some people, and this is one of the problems with legal education, is a lot of our professors were fabulous students. But if you ask them why they were fabulous students, they won't have an answer. They don't know why. Or worse, they'll say, well, because I'm really smart. You know, that's kind of the end of it. And that might be the, the secret reason they, they feel that way. They haven't, they haven't unlocked any secret, right? So part of the problem is when you ask people, what, are your, what, what should we do? Even going to professor's office hours, what do you recommend? The, the quality of the answers you get may not be that great. Doesn't mean you shouldn't ask. But what you're really looking for is help on learning how to make argument for your particular class. So you could even frame it that way when you ask the question. Or at the very least, when you get your answer, translate it, right, into like, okay, how is this going to help me at being good at the kinds of arguments my professor is interested in? And what I mean by that is not substantive, but kind of procedural. Like, what, do the, what does good argument look like? And most professors have a pretty good idea of what they want, and they're mostly all the same. There might be some variations, which is why you look at sample answers. So uh, what I would say is ask questions definitely, but have two pools of people. Have the people you're asking questions about who you're trying to figure things out in the class substantively, like I didn't understand that. So yes, go to the professor, ask them to explain further, ask your peers to explain further, have a study buddy that you want to ask questions of. That's pool number one. Pool number two, which is not necessarily the same people at all, are people who kind of get law school. And they're the ones you want to ask and say, look, I'm I'm struggling getting through my reading. How do you do it efficiently? I'm struggling. Should I do my out? You know, those kinds of questions. Um, and those that second pool might be a very short list. It might just be a professor or two that you trust or a student or two that you trust. Yeah. And, and then 
two thoughts. Number one, if, if you've ever lived through my Zoom experience, you know my dog is part of the Zoom experience, so I apologize for the, the barking. I'm sure that will come out in post-production. Yeah. I'll take care of it. The audio engineers will remember. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the audio engineers are furiously working on it right now, but I apologize. Um, and, and, and I wanted, second point was I wanted to, to build on, on Patrick's last point, which is some level of self-awareness goes a long way. And, and for me, it was figuring out when in class I got confused. Was it that a professor relied on a fact? And she kept on pulling these facts, and I, I never thought that fact was outcome determinative. Or my holdings were very broad, and, and she seemed to have them very narrow. Or for the life of me, I couldn't figure out the rationales for the decision I, I highlighted where they said we hold, but I didn't understand why they so held. And it was when I saw patterns, and for me, that the pattern was different in different classes. Uh, there wasn't one distinct pattern, but when I saw a pattern of why am I confused right now? She's talking about policy and, and I, I didn't get it, or, or her holding is much narrower than my, you know, gigantic broad holding. Going to a professor, going to a peer with, with that kind of focused problem of how do I find the Goldilocks moment of making my holding just right? Or am I over-relying on facts? How do you figure out what an outcome determinative fact is well, it turns out that if it comes up a second time in the case, that's a great hint that it's an outcome determinative fact. So just getting advice like that by knowing what is stubbing your toe. Um, and for me, that was either the moments in class where I was confused. I would try to make a note of, of where, where are we in the architecture of a case that, that I'm confused about or when I was reading a case. And I felt the need to reread a paragraph. What was it about that paragraph? Where were we? And why do I always keep stubbing my toe when we get to that moment in a case? If I could learn to be a little more fluent in those moments, I, I can get a lot stronger in my analysis. So having that self-awareness and, and going to, to the varying pools of, 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 of support, I think is very valuable. I think a theme that keeps recurring in this conversation is that there's so many information gaps and there's so many gates in law school that you don't even know exist until you get there and you're in it and then you're like, oh, this is what I have to do or maybe you never figure it out. So we're hoping that in this conversation, you can kind of fill some of those gaps for our listeners. Um, I know I talked to, to Professor Wandsworth about this, but I had no idea what outlining was as a 1L. I thought it was just taking your notes and then copying it onto another page or printing out all your notes. So if we could, yeah, dispel some of those gaps and fill in that information, if either of you want to share about what outlining is, how to make effective outlines, what cold calls are, um, I think that'd be really helpful for listeners too. Yeah, I, I always think of outlines as a script. Um, I, I think the best outlines tell you what to do if you are the plaintiff versus if you're the defendant or if you're a proponent of evidence or an opponent of evidence or prosecutor, criminal defense. This idea that your rules in an outline should be structured in a way of who will reach for this rule and when. Um, what element does this rule go to? Is it pro-prosecutor or pro-defendant? So a lot of times the outlines that one else craft 
are really rough first drafts. There's got to be a lot of cutting and pasting and then an analogy underneath and then, you know, a little policy underneath. But always geared towards who's going to use the fact. And so just a list of holdings, which is what I did my my first year. These, these are all the holdings, darn it, and all the rules. They are on the page. How could I possibly go wrong? I went wrong. Um, because I wasn't sure who would use what and when and how. And, and so an outline does go through stages that way, where at, when you know it's right, when you're kind of saying to yourself, oh, hearsay objection, you're going to say not for truth of the matter. They're going to say this in response to not for truth of the matter. They're going to reach for this go-to exception. The response to that go-to exception when you feel, and, and rarely does that eureka moment come where you feel fully scripted, but when it starts happening on a sample exam that you're writing or thinking or outlining, and your outline is getting you there, that's that's when you know that you're at that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, I I completely agree. And, um, you know, uh, just a couple of things, and this is, this is a, you know, ready for some controversy. This is a little controversial. And uh, Pavel, I'm interested in, in your view on this, but you know, there's a lot of, one of the, one of the problems that I see is that outlining is never perfect. In fact, it's far from perfect and it can be an obstacle for people to prepare for exams, uh, because there's a, there's a good faith understanding, which is correct. That if you write your own outline, that's the best. And, uh, but, but doing that for some students means that it crowds out studying. So talk about a knowledge gap, like if, especially if you're in first semester, you know, I think the vast majority of students spend far too much time during the review period finishing their outline, which after all, is not going to be turned in and it's not the skill you're being tested on in the final. So it's kind of a weird thing to spend more time on something you're not going to be tested on. And then as an almost afterthought, because there's no time to do practice exams. So knowing that this is not perfect advice, nonetheless, I still give advice that you may disagree with, guys. I want to know what you think. I, I recommend that people start outlining from the beginning of the semester. And that includes your first semester of instruction. So some of you, this is too late, and that's okay. We're halfway through, but most people kind of wait till the last third of the semester. Like in the second semester, spring break is kind of the classic, let's start outlining. And while outlining too early is, I think, justifiably criticized as outlining in a place when you don't quite know what you're doing yet and it might mean that you have to revise it later. I think that the process of being too early and revising later is not a bad thing and it happens a lot less frequently than people think and the benefit of outlining from the beginning is that if every week you kind of outline what happened during the week in your classes it becomes a manageable document as part of your process and it it allows it to be done when the semester ends and I feel so strongly about that that I actually tell students that if you're behind the eight ball and you're it's the near the end of the semester and you haven't started outlining the course yet i honestly think it might be better to get another outline i'm not advocating that you get another outline it's just that that's the better of two less good options the other one being writing an outline with the remainder of your time and i think that people do that because we're all perfectionists here and there's kind of a cue, right? It's like you do the outline before you can do the, the, the exam. And that's, you know, first of all, that's not true. But if it is true, it, it means you should do a worse outline in a better exam, right, than the other way around. 
But it's also true that if you start testing yourself early, that's a great way to learn things. You don't need to finish your outline before you can start practicing. So I'm interested what you guys think about that. But but that's kind of been one of my strong pushes is that people start outlining earlier. And the other strong push is to be a little bit more reckless with your reading in the sense that you don't want to give every word equal dignity as if you're preparing for a class question the next day that might otherwise humiliate you if you don't know the answer. It's okay to not be perfect in your reading prep with some of that time diverted towards outlining. But of course, Paul was mentioning earlier that it's also the pendulum can swing too far the other way. If all you're reading for is a holding and moving on, that's not what I'm talking about. So anyway, I'm interested what you guys think about those ideas. Yeah, I'll critique you first. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I think I understand your approach. It makes perfect sense to me. My approach is just a few weeks off from yours. In, in terms of, I know students get start briefing, one else do, and the brief becomes the thing. Mm. And making the perfect brief means that I know what I'm doing, and if I get called on, everything will be okay because my heavens, I, I have the brief. Mm -hmm. and, and so typically what I, I preach is let's spend the first two or three weeks, and I'm, I'm overusing this term, the architecture of a case. Let, let's know what a case is. You feel, okay, I, I've been here before. I know this is the rationale that supports the holding. I know this is the rule. And, and let's start making our briefs a lot, lot shorter. Yeah. And now let's use that time. So two to three weeks in, now let's start using that time where we're not overly briefing and creating the masterpiece brief to start outlining, realizing that we're going to be wildly inefficient, but also realizing that if we can't outline it, we don't know it. And, and that's incredibly valuable information. I thought I knew adverse possession, but man, I don't know the difference be between adverse and notorious. There's something different there, and I don't know what it is. Eureka, you know, looking at someone else's outline, and I know Patrick isn't, isn't advocating just rely on a commercial outline. Looking at someone else's outline, you could read it and say, that makes sense to me, but it really doesn't make sense to you. When you have to say adverse is, notorious is, mm -hmm. if you can't answer that question, you don't know it. So, so I like that approach of, hey, I'm taking something off your plate. Now I'm adding something onto your plate and do precisely what Patrick said three weeks in, Let, let's start a running document, even if it feels a little clunky and you're not creating the perfect script, you're at least seeing what you know and getting feedback on, on your efforts. Ideally leading to October, November, you're doing sample questions based on what you've outlined so far. So again, you have that feedback of, wow, my outline didn't help me answer this question. I guess I better go back to adverse and notorious because I just really, really botched it on this on this adverse possession hypo that I tried to do. And 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 that becomes another level of feedback. I also strongly agree with Patrick that, you know, there there are gonna be triage moments in our careers, uh, in our academic careers, in our professional careers, where you just have to find the best route across the river. And, and yes, yeah, sometimes that is using another outline 
to help you get to that crucial skill of, I gotta be looking at my professor's old exams. How does she test? What does she look for? And I gotta do some of these. I can't be polishing, polishing, polishing this perfect outline at the expense, and, and that leads to false fluency. So, so yeah, there, there comes a point where you have to let go of that perfectionism, perhaps, you know, use the safety net of another outline, but yeah, you got to get writing and you got to see if you can answer a question. Let me just add one more thing, because I, I, I totally agree with everything you said. And uh, I guess, I, I guess that makes sense that if you're formally briefing a little outlining, it's a little bit much. I, I, I think that some students might benefit from doing it anyway. The only idea being that in the first week or two, there's not much being done in the doctrinal classes. It's, it's easier outlining time, but not always, right? So sometimes it's a problem. So I think either of these approaches, I think, are totally reasonable. And I 100% support and find very important what Pavel was talking about with briefing, because it's the same problem with outlining, right? Students fall into a trap where everything they're doing in law school has to be perfect. And it, but it distracts from the real job, which is learning how to make arguments. And writing the perfect brief um, is something that really ranks even lower than writing the perfect outline. And you really should, I 100% agree, formally brief, just like Bobble said, and then let it go. Because that's just, that's not a good use of time. Uh, it's notes for you. When you get good at reading a case and knowing, or better at reading a case and knowing what's important, find a way to just document that in a way that no one has to read, right? It's just for you and save some time that way, for sure. Um, because, right, I mean, I think our unifying message is none of this stuff actually is important to the central task, which is learning how to make argument. So these are just ways to then do the main event, which is listen in class to the dialogue. You don't have to raise your hand but you should answer in your head the answers, the, the questions that are being asked. And you should, because that's practice, that's skills practice. And then practice developing hypos outside of class. And by hypos, I, you know, that's an intimidating word. I just mean like, can you come up with a fact pattern where you're applying the rule you just learned, even if it's a very easy fact pattern? Because that, that learning to use the rule in the wild it's something you want to practice all semester because that's what you're being tested on. And outlining in briefs, honestly, get in the way. And I think the reason they get in the way is Pavel nailed it. Students are trying to come to class and they're studying as if the class is the exam, right? They want to be able to answer any question the professor happens to ask. But the secret is, guys, there's a teacher's manual that feeds information to the professors that the that there's right. no way you can prepare right. And, there's, and, and the professors are gonna focus on things that you can't prepare for based on their own expertise too. That's why there is class. So I tell students, just lower your standards. It's okay to come into class and learn something. It's okay to go into class and be surprised because the time you save the night before trying to not be perfect is huge. And it can be directed towards other things like writing that outline, et cetera. So it's all right to not get it right the first time. After three years, you never will, honestly. I mean, I can't think of a class where I was like, boy, I nailed that case, knew exactly what the professor was. It, it never happens. So you let go of that perfectionism now. Professors are trying to bring value in class that you didn't anticipate. Yeah, and they grade anonymously. So 
That's right. That's right. <laughs> you don't need to impress them. You just need to work. Yep. They won't remember. I, I, for me, you know, I do use other students' outlines because I think I have more of an act of learning when I do practice problems and practice essays. And I did try to write outlines my 1L year and probably did zero practice problems and did not very great. So I think a little bit of a combination of both of your all's um, advice definitely works for me. And I think, you know, in class, it's more explicit in both of your classes where you go through a case or you go through a rule and you're you're asking for arguments on both sides. And so writing those down is very helpful. And then, you know, once you do, you're going to see the same issues and then you're going to already have some arguments ready for for this issue. What do you think, Nicole? Yeah, I think a combination of both of your advice really helped me in my second semester of 1L and then during 2L. So during 1L, I just had all my notes. And then when I took the exam, I didn't even write counter arguments. I just wrote like, this is the argument that the plaintiff's going to make. Nothing on the other side. So just got like zero, zero, zero on my final. And I was like, what happened? Like, you know, I did really poorly because I didn't know that I was supposed to be arguing both sides. I just thought I'm supposed to be explaining like, this is what the plaintiff's going to argue. So learning how to write a script, that actually did help me study more, um, like the process of outlining and learning, like, this is what the plaintiff's going to say. This is what the defendant's going to say. This is, this is how we're going to, this is how we're going to counter. That was really helpful. And also starting the outlining process earlier um, allowed me to know that I wasn't understanding things and come up with questions early on um, versus waiting till like Thanksgiving break to start outlining and start studying. So yeah, both advice was very helpful to me. So what about midterms? What do you all think about midterms? I know there's some midterms that are graded, some midterms that are ungraded. Um, how do we prepare for them or, you know, not even prepare for midterms, but ensure that our practice and our preparation for midterms and taking the actual midterms and then reviewing it is going to prepare us for the final, regardless if it's graded or ungraded? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a great feedback opportunity. Um, I, I always tell students, even if it's ungraded, take it seriously. This is a, a good opportunity to say, see, so we've been flirting about the, around the issue of, do you have an input problem or do you have an output problem? Are you not understanding the material or you're perfectly understanding the material? You could explain it to other people in your study group, but your essay doesn't reveal that, your, your output in writing an exam. So learning if either of those things are happening you missed an issue was it because you ran out of time output issue or you didn't see that issue input issue you saw facts you didn't recognize that that would lead to intentional infliction of emotional distress that may mean that you don't know intentional infliction of emotional distress well so having that under game conditions where you can't fudge it and and believe me i was the master of fudging it my first uh, semester of rather than writing an exam answer, I would just outline it. And then I would look at the model answer. And even though I didn't have that in my outline of the question, I would say, yeah, I would have said, I totally would have said that. And I, no, it didn't even cross my mind. So having it under game conditions, you didn't write it, you wouldn't have gotten points for it, is, is a really valuable moment. So I, I recognize the pressures of of legal writing, the legal writing class, the, the pressures of what about my other classes? They're speeding along. I can't just stop the world and study for my property midterm. You should take it as seriously as possible to get feedback from the professor as well as feedback on your own process. 
totally agree. And and um, you know, feedback is one of the things we don't do enough in law school. So any chance to get it, you should take it seriously. One of the things that I think students sometimes do is they they actually can freak out about midterms. The other go the other way and be like, oh, and it becomes this outsized thing. And what you want to do is instead, it really is meant to be a feedback device. It is what people call in the business formative assessment. It's not meant to grade you. It's meant to point out what you need to learn before you get really graded. And um, so if it's ungraded, then, okay, people are less stressed, but then the danger is that they also don't work as hard to prepare for it. And when it's graded, the problem is that they overstress and that interferes. So, you know, you get what I'm saying. Um, what you want to do for any midterm, I think, assuming that it's not worth 70% of your grade, I'm not aware of anyone really having it be worth that much and frequently is ungraded, is you work as hard as you can for it to get the best possible feedback you can get without the stress. And uh, because the stress will interfere with your other classes and your general happiness as well as your performance. But, you know, the there's just not that many opportunities for feedback. So, so you want to treat them all very seriously. And some students will kind of think, well, you know, what if it's multiple choice? For example, I give multiple choice and I give a um, essay final. I do that deliberately because earlier in the semester, I'm trying to make sure people have grasps of things that are much more tangible. Do they understand the rule? Do they understand the, the organization of the class? Do they understand basic application of rule to fact? And then it's an essay because then we're dealing more with the central skill of arguing. But students will kind of see that it's multiple choice. And then the undergrad perfectionist person kind of jumps in and they're like, okay, how do I practice to be really good at, at multiple choice? Instead of thinking about, well, no, let's just focus on the class. Let's get the questions take care of itself. So midterm, there's less gamesmanship. Let it go. You know, for most classes, just go in, do your best. Uh, don't let the stress overwhelm you uh, because you do need to keep up with the other classes. What can students do if their professors don't provide them with opportunities for feedback? So they're not an academic support. There's not a lot of space to practice and know if they're on the right track. Well, that's the problem with law school. Uh, there's two, there's these vast deserts in your schedules, typically, where there's no feedback. And um, if you have front of mind that the, you know, as Pavel was saying, if you're reverse engineering what the exam requires of you, if you have front of mind that you're going to be graded ultimately, most of the time we're excluding seminars and clinics, but even then, arguably, uh, on the quality of your argument, if that's kind of the, the, the name of the game, how do you study all semester doing that? Uh, even if your professor is giving little problems here and there, it's generally not enough. So whether they're giving you a little feedback or no feedback, you need to be creating problems. You need to be creating hypotheticals. I actually counsel students every week while they're doing their outline for the week. They are also coming up with their own examples, like I mentioned earlier, of the application of the law to fact. And I, and because students are kind of you know wild about trying to succeed, They'll sometimes write these elaborate hypos. No, no, no. Can you write a simple one, honestly, which can be very hard? Can you write one that just simply is an illustration of the rule as it's being applied? Do that for every rule you learn. Come up with a rule with a set of facts that does not satisfy the rule. Have a study buddy, not a study group, but a study buddy. This is, you know, a study group, I think, is too, there's too many people. But if you have just one other person where you can exchange those hypos with each other, check your outlines with each other. 
That's a feedback that's essential to what you need for the finding. Because you're, you're checking for the validity of your rules and you've got someone to ask questions about if you don't know a rule. Um, and you've got troubleshooting early on where it's the application of the rule where you really learn whether you know it and really understood it, as opposed to that passive learning we do when we read our casebook and then just go to bed satisfied that we're studying for class. No, you need to apply, apply, apply. So do that with a study buddy. And that's the kind of feedback that can substitute even for a midterm. You know, if your class doesn't have a midterm, doesn't have any feedback from your professor, the feedback they're giving you during the semester may not be as good as that anyway, as good as doing your own active learning, which is which is time consuming and difficult. But that way you troubleshoot if you know a rule and you don't know a rule. And one tip I want to add about ways to kind of get to the bottom of it when you don't know a rule, you're not sure what the answer is after coming, you know, having another outline is great. Also be aware, I don't advocate that you ever buy a commercial outline. Most, except for there's a couple exceptions, but most of them are really not that great. And it's just extra reading, which you don't need. But there's nothing stopping you from going to Louvao and pulling a, a commercial outline off a shelf and looking up collateral estoppel and seeing what they say, and then putting it back on the shelf and leaving, right? Like you can you can kind of get questions answered as, an, you know, it's if, if like your professor's hard to get to or opaque and you're stuck and your study buddy doesn't understand, there are ways to kind of get that answer and move on. But by outlining early and doing the feedback early, then it's not the week before finals that you suddenly realize, oh, I never quite understood what that meant in week two, right? So the constant feedback by creating hypos and having a study buddy is what I recommend. All I would add to that is make sure you have an answer to every professor given hypo, even kind of cavalierly thrown out in the middle of a discussion of a case. Those have a way of, of circling back on exams or the professor feels that it really encapsulates the, the grayness of an issue. So if a professor throws out a hypo, write it down uh, and, and try to find an answer to that. And, uh, you know, echoing what, what Patrick said, don't worry if you don't know, but what's the answer? Um, is that adverse? Is that notorious? It doesn't matter. Uh, old school. You'll, you'll be able to kind of go back and forth on it, which is what a professor looks for. So don't worry so much about correctness. Uh, you may find yourself feeling, well, I'm only 60% certain that's right. As long as you can explain the other 40%, you're, you're good. Let's talk a little bit about finals. Um, what is your opinion about how to prepare for open book finals versus closed book finals or finals where you only have like the, you know, one sheet or one sheet of notes? That's what it's called. <laughs> yeah. yeah, limited open book is, is what it's sometimes called. Yeah, I, um, I think you should treat every final as if it were closed book because you are not going to have a lot of time to, you know, look at the red tabs in your 50 page outline or, or whatever it is, you, you should be knowing this stuff. Cool. Not to the extent that you feel that you have to spend time memorizing, which you do have to do in a closed book exam. There's, there's a stretch of time that you're going to have to work in of kind of saying, okay, can I come up with a mnemonic for that? Or, or I, I really have to know this cool. Um, but the, the bottom line is I, I think you should be treating any exam as if it were a closed book and feeling like I'm only using this outline in an open book exam, uh, open outline exam in case of emergency break glass kind of thing. 
Um, it's why I, I uh, in evidence, only allow students to bring in a one-page outline. I want them to condense everything. There it is. You didn't memorize the business record exception. You have it. You have your safety blanket. But I, I want you to kind of condense it and be ready to go. So that's kind of my strategy. It doesn't, my advice doesn't change very much other than building in time for memorization if it's closed book. And I, I, I think that's all absolutely correct. And the only thing I would add, and this advice also doesn't change whether it's open or closed, is um, really emphasize the process of gathering your thoughts before you begin writing, uh, what I call pre-writing. Students sometimes run out of time on timed exams. And ironically, it's because they haven't actually figured out enough before they started writing. So they're thinking on the page. And that takes a long time. And when you're thinking on the page and you're kind of doing it one issue at a time and writing as you go and thinking as you go, you do poor jobs of issue triage. You do a poor job of deciding which issues really need the most attention, which seems to have the most sprawling facts or sprawling argument, counter argument, which are merely threshold issues. People tend to write things before they even get started, these kind of preliminary preambles when they're just, the, the stress is there and they, they, they're afraid they're going to run out of time, so they start writing early. So I really encourage students, and I've just seen this uh, in the results, that if you take a good chunk of time, you know, maybe even a, a full fifth or even up to a quarter, something you have to work out on your own when you do practices, but some really substantial amount of time like 20% or 25% of the total time that you're answering a question, figuring out what you're going to answer and actually doing a step-by-step -step analysis where you're finding the issue, you're gathering the facts that are relevant to that issue, and you're developing without deferring to later, which is so easy. I mean, we procrastinate even under the stress of a final sometimes. Oh, that's the hard part. I'll figure it out when I get there. No, you won't. Before you start writing, well, it's still kind of cheap and easy for you to change your mind because you haven't committed to writing yet. Um, this is when you develop the arguments for the plaintiff and for the defendant. Um, this is when you realize, oh, the, here's the heart of the exam. Hmm, this is actually kind of hard. I'm actually not sure what to say here. You, you, it's inevitable to have a moment where you say on an exam, that devious professor came up with a set of facts that, that threads the needle perfectly, so now I don't know what to do. I thought I knew the rule. They're doing that on purpose. So first of all, you don't freak out because everyone, that, that's the same reaction we're all having to that exam. But what you want to do is in advance, you still want to give it your best shot. Avail yourself of the reason for the rule to, to strengthen the, both arguments on either side. And, uh, but, but do that without writing. Yes, take notes, scribble little notes so you, so you kind of have dictated to yourself later what, you, what you're going to say. Right, you want to record that thought, but you don't want to just defer till later that thought because writing and thinking at the same time is tricky. So work out as much as you can in advance. And then when the writing comes, it's like almost like a second draft, right? You've already worked it out. Now you're writing it and it's not unusual for students to refine or change on the fly. That's okay because you've already done your heavy lifting beforehand. I don't recommend, so, so do you see how there's a skill to taking an exam? I don't recommend that you do this for the first time on an actual exam. In your practice exams, you're getting used to this process. You're figuring out how much time you need. You're figuring out how much you actually need to write down to remember for later. Some students claim, heck, it's 90 minutes to answer this question. I remember everything. I don't have to write anything. I just kind of 
circle on the page and it, other people need to actually document a little bit. But your answers will be shorter, denser, and better if you do some pre-writing thinking. Yeah, and, and the crucial pre-writing thinking is, is that issue triage. Um, that, that sense of I see seven torts, which are high point, which are medium point, which are low point. And within that tort, which element is absolutely gray, has a great counter argument, requires you to marshal a lot of facts, and which one is, is he was punched in the nose. Yes, there was contact with the person of another. We can get going on whether it was intentional or not for a battery claim. So, so those doing issue triage, what I call macro prioritization and micro prioritization, looking at all the issues and then within an issue, what elements or factors where you're going to spend the most amount of time. Having a vision of that as you're reading the question, outlining the question, thinking about the question, uh, I think makes you more efficient uh, and, and just allows you to maximize your point uh, on what could be a very tight curve. Speaking of curves, so even even the law school grading system can be an information gap for a lot of students. People aren't graded on curves in undergrad and in high school. So could you describe what the curve is um, and how that works and how to navigate that in the grading process? So the curve is kind of, you know, you're, you ask five different professors about the curve and five different students about the curve, and you're going to get different reactions, some of them very visceral to a curve. I mean, I think that the abstract concept of a curve and I don't actually have the, I don't, maybe Pavel remembers the actual percentages, uh, but we can, you can certainly look those up in the summary of academic standards um, uh, on the UCLA page. But the, um, you know, the idea of a curve can really rub people the wrong way. Um, and, um, you know, the idea that there's only a certain number of grades that are, can be given out percentage wise to each student, uh, to each class, excuse me, you know, I'll tell you, my feelings change every year. Some, some years I hate it, and some years I'm not so bad on it. I'll tell you why I come down on it. And really, in the end, it doesn't matter how we come down on it. There's nothing we can do about it, right? This is the operating rule. Nonetheless, I do believe that uh, in the abstract, it's a horrible idea. In practice, it's not so horrible. I have found that the hardest line for me to draw is the B plus A minus line, honestly. Some years I have classes that are real strong, and the curve forces me to draw that line where a couple of those B pluses I think should be A minuses. So, but if you think about it, that's not that many people in a large class. And the curve requires me to give a certain number that are B or lower, but B or lower, and then it's up to me which one. And some years I'm a little bit bummed out about the line where the B plus and the B is drawn, but some years I'm not. You know, some years I do feel like, look, the student did not do what needed to happen. And I don't find that the curve is so different than the reality of it. Now, it's a totally different question about whether or not good teaching has happened in your class and good learning has happened, right? Are the grades merely sorting people into categories without them actually having learned because the professors just, there's been no feedback during the year? All those kinds of worst habits of legal pedagogy. A curve can just be a kind of a stamp of approval or disapproval that was predetermined. So you guys have agency here, right? You can do these many of these things that we've been talking about where you're actually becoming practiced and skilled at advocacy. 
Um, if you do that, the curve is not going to really be something that gets in your way. There's too many students in law school who don't know what they're doing and are doing it by instinct. There's students getting A's who are doing it by instinct. And there's students who are struggling at doing it by instinct, right? There's, it's a small number of people who are being deliberate and thoughtful. If you're listening to this podcast, you're one of those people. You're a good candidate of being someone who can kind of not let the curve be a factor one way or the other. Because we have big pools of people in each grade category, and there's no reason why you can't do what's necessary to be in the big pool at the top. We do have pretty big pools at the top. But no, I mean, the curve can really stress you out. And if it does stress you out, seek someone, seek, you know, talk about it with somebody, someone uh, at the Dean of Students or a professor or, or a friend. I'll tell you one thing that I think is kind of nice about UCLA Law School, uh, from what I've seen compared to other schools, is that although there is a curve, and Nicole and Alyssa, you may be able to speak to this, uh, but comparatively, what I've seen is that although there is a curve, people are less worried about it here than other schools. They're healthier about it. They tend to realize that it's not something you have control over. You just do your best. Um, so there isn't this kind of horrible competitive atmosphere that some schools do have. And I, I enjoy that a lot about this law school. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's there. It's inevitable. How do you live with it? One way is, is knowing that undergraduate grading doesn't apply here. You know, you get 65 out of 100 points on an exam. That might be an A. Uh, and, and, and to not walk out of every exam saying, bombed it based on my undergrad self, who always got between 90 and 100% of the available points, and, and finding that moment of grace of, yeah, you know, that was a hard exam, but I'm sure it was hard for everyone. And, and another way of, of thinking about it is, is to kind of say, all right, how do I maneuver in this space? And, and the way to maneuver in this space is to maximize points. Uh, and, and so the, the sense of I'm going to overwrite on the first issue I touch. And then the professor will know I was there and I knew this stuff and I did the best on issue number one. Issue number one was worth 10 points. I got 10 out of 10. And the professor is not going to typically is not going to remember, boy, that student started out like a gang of of fire. So that, that student was amazing coming out of the gate. The, the professor is just going to say, okay, got 45 out of 100. Not started great, ran out of time, clearly could have done better, but didn't. So it really, that, that sense of issue triage, that sense of macro and micro prioritization of you're better off hitting every issue uh, than really putting a pretty bow on two issues and ignoring two issues. Um, you, you aren't served well by spending more time than is allotted on a question uh, and then running out of time on the last question and doing really poorly on that. So some of it is, is you kind of saying it exists, it's there. How can I at least maximize my performance from that? And, and the final point is a hard exam is actually an ally to a student because then you don't have this curve where one point is going to separate A minus from B plus. And I've been there. I've been in that, that angst, you know, angsty position of rereading finals three times uh, during the holiday season, trying to separate, find some clue between the A minuses and B pluses. Hard exams allow a professor to say, well, there's a four point gap. And that's significant uh, on this, this curve. So 
to also realize walking out that heart exam might lend itself to a, a good curve uh, and, and to not worry about it too much. Before we move on to after finals, um, I would like to you know, get your advice on timing issues. I know I struggle with timing a lot and prioritizing issues. Um, and I guess what helps me is to make sure I'm taking it under time conditions, yeah. my practice tests, and also uh, not outline outlining the question, like, you know, treating it like an actual test. Do you have any other advice uh, for folks who struggle with test anxiety, especially for standardized testing or any kind of timed environment? Take that one, Pavel. Sure. Uh, I, I agree with you. Practice the, the way you play, um, especially because practice exams are an opportunity to try methods. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to type anything until 33% of the time has passed. Let's see if I write better and well doing that, or let's see if my word count plummets dramatically. This is a good opportunity, but it doesn't work if you don't hold yourself to uh, a time constraint. So, so I believe that that's, that's really important, as, as is actually writing it out uh, and not saying, okay, 20% of the time, 25% of the time to read it and outline it, that's all I'll do and, and call that a victory. I, I, I think, again, the fudge factor comes in and, and you might not really be appreciating what you know or don't know. I know that some studies have shown that, believe it or not, pre-writing what the exam experience is gonna be like actually reduces stress. 24 hours before an exam to literally type, I'm gonna go in there, I'm gonna have my earbuds in, I'm gonna be you know, listening to Chopin, and I'm then the exam's gonna start, I'm not gonna freak out, I'm gonna read it through once, gonna read it through, literally kind of typing that out or handwriting that out of this is how it's going to go and it's going to be fine has found has been shown to reduce stress once the exam happens and you read the question and you start thinking oh no i don't know this area of law or why is the professor testing this area of law you've kind of mapped it out you know what you're going to do and that um with uh exam anxiety and to to trust that it's not about right answers. It's about following your script, getting both arguments down, pro, con, uh, and, and giving yourself that sense of, I didn't have to find the right answer on this in order to do well. You know, I, I, I would add one more thing too. I, all of that is super important. And there's also, you know, one of the common flip outs that students have on exams, um, which you can, work through by practicing is a very human and natural thing, which is if, if, assuming you get a big hypothetical. So there's a volume of facts that you're getting. And those facts are about several different issues, you know, six or seven different issues on, on an exam, exam question. And they're all scrambled and they're presented in a kind of a narrative form. And that can really kind of do a number on some people, right? You read that and suddenly it's like, you don't have your bearings. You're lost at sea. The ship is like, whatever the metaphor, you know, it's like things are, I don't say also, but it's bad. It's, there's a storm and you don't, you don't know where you are and you, you know, you're reading and then what's happening is you're like spotting things like, oh, I'm going to need to write about that. Or that's interesting. And then you read that something, you get like five or six of those. Oh, I'm going to need to write about that. And suddenly for quite a few people, that's like, that's a really big market list. It's a little bit much. 
Um, and then suddenly you're not reading, you're not concentrating. So what you want to do is have a very kind of concrete strategy about how you approach a big fact pattern. And what's at least worked for me, and everyone's got to work out what works for them, but what's worked for me, and I've heard it working for some other people as well, is this notion that there is really only five, six, seven issues or some number that is kind of constant. Like it might, you know, I, there's no rule, right? No one's, professors aren't meeting and talking about this, but roughly if you have like a 90 minute exam question, you're probably going to have about five issues, maybe six, maybe seven. Depends on the class. Some are bigger, some are small. But it's some manageable number when you think about it that way. And then when you look through the facts, so if, if I'm like reading, I'll re start reading the facts after I've read it through once, just to kind of get the story. I'll read it through again. And if I see an issue, I stop. I document that issue. And now I look for the facts associated with that issue. And sometimes I'm underwhelmed, right? Even though there's this huge problem, there's like three facts, four facts relevant to that issue. And, and then I work out my arguments on both sides. This is that pre-writing process we were talking about. Then you move on to the next issue and you document that one and you work out what you're going to argue. And what you're doing is bringing method to this crazy madness, right? You're really kind of bringing order to chaos. And chaos, I think, is what really makes people get into an anxiety loop, right? Where they're just like, I can't, where am I? Like, what's going on here? Because there's too many, you're having too many thoughts simultaneously about all the things you've had to do. So at least for me to kind of make it linear, turn a three-dimensional problem into not even two-dimensional, but just one-dimensional, a cube. Here's the issue. Here's the facts associated with it. Arguments on both sides. Next issue is something that you can spend your time doing for, as Pavel said, I don't know, X amount of time. You got to work it out because you got to work out if once you're done doing that, are you able to document it? But if we had to ballpark it, anywhere from 20 to 33% of your time could be spent working all this stuff out. And by the way, be ready to hear other people start before you, right? Because they don't, as we're saying, most people don't think about how to approach law school. You are. And if it, in fact, most people start writing early, then it would make sense that during the exam, if you're in a room and you're hearing people typing on their laptop, you're going to hear lots of people start writing pretty furiously and it might be too early. Uh, of course, they may be pre-writing on their laptop, but you got to figure out what, what works for you. And for a lot of people, it's actually grabbing a pen and paper because it's just a little easier to circle and draw arrows and do all that kind of stuff. But maybe you want to start typing. I don't know. Yeah, and the benefit of, of what Patrick just described is your short-term memory can only hold so much. Mm -hmm. It can only hold like seven chunks uh, of, of information. And, and so if you're reading the fifth paragraph, and you're saying to yourself, oh, now I get why that fact was in the second paragraph, and talking about thinking back to that work in the second paragraph, reading comprehension goes down, you're clogging that short-term memory. When you have clogged short-term memory, you can't reason as quickly, the computer slows down. So, so this idea of, you know, at its core, this is six mini hypos, kind of like I talked through with my study buddy or my study group or on my own, and, I can answer six hypos in this class is, is a really kind of good, relaxing way of, of, of turning chaos to, to somewhat order. Professor Goodman, I want to get back to a, a question that you asked both Alyssa and I earlier about the competitive nature of UCLA and whether it's competitive to us. And just in my own experience, I 
didn't think that it was competitive during 1L, but I definitely was swayed by a, a lot of other students thinking and a, a lot of other students actions like people would tell me they're doing this and I'm like okay well I need to be doing that mm-hmm. um and I also due to that I thought that I was the only one who was struggling a lot during 1L and was also told by like upper level students like maybe don't take section 9 con law because like it's stigmatized and whatnot um but I found that like being in section 9 con law with other students who admitted that they're struggling, admitted that they needed help, a vulnerable space. If I wasn't in that class, I probably would have quit law school just because I thought that I was going through it by myself. So that community was really helpful for me. But to the question, just other students who feel like they're in a a dark place or struggling a lot in law school and that there's not, that everyone else is succeeding and everyone is doing well and they're the only ones going through it and they get their grades back and they're not so good for the first time in their lives. How would you like what sort of support would you give to those students um, who are struggling feel like they're doing it alone? Um, is that to me? Yeah, I would I, either of us. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, your experience as you realized and it's, uh, we're so happy that you did is, is so common. Right. Students silo off. You, you only hear the people who and don't be that jerk. Right. Who gets a job. Great job after their first year and tells everyone or got good grades their first semester and tells everyone, well, that's all you hear. So most people are having, you know, a crisis at a different level, right, that they've had before. And it's really, yes, most people. It's kind of shocking how many people in the law school kind of suffer silently about how they're doing. Um, So talking about it to who you feel comfortable talking to, whether it be friends, people inside or outside of the law school, but definitely, of course, there's CAPS and there's the Dean of Students and there's trusted professors who have a perspective on this, a professional perspective, who can really give you good information because there's such an information distortion that goes on when you keep to yourself and you, uh, not to mention emotionally, of course, it's hard to keep to yourself when things feel negative, but just straight up facts sometimes are not available. So Reaching out, I think, is important. It's healthy in life, not just in law school. But for many people, law school is the first time they have to start learning that life skill of reaching out and leaning on other people. So uh, I, I think it's, you know, I, I am very grateful to be teaching at a law school where students, although there's always this sense of stigma that it, that it kind of looms over, it's like a specter whenever someone is reaching for help. I think that's a societal American thing that it's bigger than our law school. What's nice about UCLA is that like our academic support sections are frequently overflowing and we turn people away. You know, and there's something about our atmosphere where people realize what I think is certainly true, which is that whatever we're doing in academic support really shouldn't be a section. It should be something that everyone's getting. It should be part of. So you can't blame people for actually getting what they should be getting. You know, um, so uh, so I'm thankful for that atmosphere. But it's hard sometimes to make that transition to from being someone who's succeeded by being your own person to someone who realizes, wait, no, for me to actually succeed, I need to I need to get help. I need to get information. I need to help other people, too, which always feels nice and just feel part of a network. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you had that experience in con law. I hear it's a good class. It has its moments. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I do remember getting my grades first semester. They came in an envelope, 
very, very nervous and opening that envelope and then devastated when I, I was on, on my, my grade report. And I'd be lying if I said, oh, I was fully confident that I could, you know, self-reflect and look in the deep, dark, truthful mirror and self-diagnose and, you know, five degrees and da da da. I mean, all, all the things that I ended up doing, I doubted that I could do when I was holding that piece of paper and my hands were shaking. And, and you know, a, a part of that is law school is rough psychologically. There's just, if, if you try to create a learning environment that would mess with people psychologically, you would probably come up with law school. Um, you know, rumors going about that unless you get a certain GPA, you'll never work in big law and therefore you'll never repay your loans or find a satisfying career. If that's, if big law is, is where you think you'll find a satisfying career, which isn't true. I ended up in big law, even with, you know, not good L grades. Um, so, you know, th there's that, there's misinformation, there's the natural bragging, nobody's bragging about their bad grades, only the people who did well seem to be talking. Um, and a lot of it deals with, you know, happy people tend to be competent and, and autonomous and related. And, and law school messes with all of those. They mess with your sense of competence because you're not getting feedback. And in my case, the only feedback I got were bad grades. So I thought, well, I'm I'm not cut for this. I'm I'm not good at this. Autonomous. I always felt like you mentioned the cool that I was chasing the path that. Oh, so and so talks a lot in class, and she mentioned that you know she rewrites her outlines. I'm going to rewrite my outlines, and then I'll be just like her, who she may be getting good grades or not, or she may be a blabbermouth. Uh, I don't know, but I just assumed she knew what she was doing, and so I wasn't autonomous. Relatedness. I I came to law school saying I want to do the criminal justice society, and I'm a second semester. I threw all that away and felt really isolated and, and siloed, as Patrick said. And and so yeah, you you have to kind of take steps of giving yourself grace to to think yeah I will get competent at this I, I stub my toe I've stubbed my toe a lot in life and and I'll I'll get competent but not to overlook the relatedness of of finding like-minded people in your class who are maybe more concerned with mastery of the material than their grades or harbor the 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 same you know goals for their career as you do and that autonomousness of there are lots of paths to an A and I can I control the path I take and I'm going to make a path that's good for me finding that that sense of competence autonomy and relatedness I, I think lends itself to a stronger psyche which can lend itself to that self-diagnosis and, and all of those things yeah, I definitely can resonate with feeling isolated, especially since Nicole and I were on Zoom our, you know, one whole entire one all year. So perception to us was everything. Um, and I think we've talked about a lot of, you know, practical approaches to finals, midterms and law school in general. But I think what's really helped for me is to not have law school be my entire life. You know, you have to you can't be practicing all day like I like to exercise, spend time with my friends, my family, like, you know, you still have to be a person. And usually when you are a person, you do a little bit better because your mental health is a little bit better. Um, I also think I needed to 
you find those people who like grades don't matter. You'll be fine. You'll get a job. And that's all true. But for myself, I felt like I could do better. And so being in academic success and academic support with and being in both of your classes, it really helped me um, be confident in myself and my abilities. And I think if you are somebody who wants, who needs to get in that headspace too, that's really important. So it just depends on, you know, how you feel. And it, 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 and it was really important for me, you know, my two all summer, I did better. I performed better in my job because I felt like, you know, I did better this year. I'm confident in my abilities. My 1L grades are not indicative of my success or, you know, my intelligence at all. And, and I know that my 1L summer was so good for me. Uh, I, I did prison legal aid. Uh, I, I, I drove to a prison, just argued disciplinary tickets on behalf of inmates. There wasn't a whole lot of law. It was pure advocacy. It was exciting. It was without a net, no rules of evidence. You just made art. And it, it reinvigorated me to be practicing law uh, rather than in this vacuum of, you know, should children be liable for torts discussed? That has value. That's an important discussion to have. But boy, my 1L summer just made me realize, ah, yeah, this is it. This is what I, I get a thrill out of. This is what I'm actually kind of good at, dare I say it. And and so, yeah, there, there are going to be a lot of moments. If you're a 1L listening to this, there are going to be a lot of really good moments coming up uh, that are, are going to make you nod your head and say, oh, yeah, I, I was born for this. And and give yourself the opportunity to to get there. Yeah, I can totally vouch for that. I had the same similar experience where, you know, just bitter disappointment with law school by the end of my first year and, you know, harboring doubts about whether this was for me and whether I was going to come back. And my first summer job, which was uh, volunteering uh, at a at a, uh, a capital defense firm in Louisiana. And I just, you know, it was it, it was it was amazing, but it didn't have to be so exotic as far as having to travel and all that. Um, it, it could have been just down the street doing whatever legal because I, I was like, oh, yeah, this is so I can be a law, a law, a lawyer. And, you know, it's it's a little it's both good and bad. But I mean, it's kind of amazing to say this, but the three years of experience you'll have as a law student are very different than what you'll be spending the rest of your life doing. And now with a little bit of distance from law school. Law school was a blink of an eye, uh, and I've had a you know a career since then, including several years practicing full time and still doing some practice now and finding my own way. And to think that I almost stopped because my grades were very poor and I was very unhappy. But to think that I almost stopped rather than just like finish and graduate and be like you know for you graduate of UCLA Law School. And then spend the rest of your life being a lawyer, um, it would have been a shame, right? It's it, it is a different feel. It's a different thing. Maybe they should be closer. And I do recommend people take clinics, right? Uh, get out there and see what it's like because that in itself during the school year can rejuvenate your experience. Uh, my third year, I took a clinic and it was it was so fun. I like I have this feeling like the first year was probably the worst year of my life in law school and the third year was one of the best in the same law school because I had this great clinic and I was starting to get it. So um, so definitely hang in there, hang in there. Yeah, I'll definitely echo those thoughts. I haven't finished law school at all, 
I'm only a 3L, but I think there's so, I had so many L's, losses during my first year that I'm like, when am I going to have a win? When am I going to actually be good at something? But Alyssa and I are both here, both on Law Review, doing other things that are exciting, the other things that are interesting to us and feel fulfilling. Um, so there are, it's a, it's a emotional roller coaster, but there's a lot of ups along with the downs. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we made it through this somewhat tra traumatizing experience. We made it to 3L. So we have a few minutes left in this interview. Um, and we want to ask, how should we be thinking about the bar during our third year? Um, how should we be preparing? Or is that something we should even be thinking about during our first semester? What courses should we be thinking about taking during our second semester? Just any bar guidance that you might have. Yeah, I, I don't don't worry about it too much. Uh, enjoy the third year and enjoy no billable hours uh, and, and things like that. There, there are a few things you can do. You you can look and, and think to yourself, oh, what bar classes have I not taken? It would be nice to have a scaffold in a, in a subject uh, that is likely to be tested or will definitely be tested. So you certainly want to think about classes like evidence and crim pro and con law too. They will be tested uh, at least on multiple choice and maybe on multiple choice and an essay. Any other state subject, not a bad idea to, to take that. In, in terms of I'm going to carve out time and I'm going to ready myself for the bar in my final semester of law school. Yeah, I mean, th there are things to do. I, I, I do workshops. Patrick has a class. Uh, consider attending that. Certainly, the one thing that I often say to 3Ls is learn how to take the performance test. It's a closed book essay or work product that you have to create. You get a fact file and some cases, and you have to write a memo or a letter to opposing counsel. Doesn't require any memorization. It's a learned skill. Learn how to do that. If you're going to devote time, and I don't think you have to, but if you are going to devote time, learn how to take the performance test. Take three to six of them. You'll get good at it. It'll open up time in the summer to learn adverse possession, which I still don't know, and and you know do things like that. Um, that would be, I think, my, my best advice. Yeah, I'll second that. The, doing the performance test your third year, just you know, getting a few of those, you can go on the California Bar webpage and they're just sitting there for you to practice. Even if you're not going to take the bar in California, every state, almost every state has a 90 minute performance test that's similar to that. Um, and just, um, yeah, just try it out, you know, um, and uh, there are some online resources kind of tipping you off on how to do that. We do have a class at UCLA on that as well. But that's only if, you know, you kind of have some time and a little bit of stress about it. It, it can make you feel good to know that 14% in California of the bar you've already familiarized yourself with and gotten quite good at. But, uh, but, but really, you know, studies do show that if you take a bar class, you know, one a semester, maybe two or three total or four over the two years from second and third year, it's unclear whether what whether we've got correlation or causation. There's a lot of debate about that, but it is true that students tend to do better on the bar if they've taken those. We don't know if they're self-selecting or if they're actually getting some instruction. I think it's a little of both because, like Pavel said, evidence is a good class to take. Uh, be careful who you take it from, 
I'm just not going to say anything. Uh, Professor Wanswitz might might be the right person for you. Um, but uh, but you know, if you take if you take evidence during law school, I would say that's the one that I, if you had to pick one, you would do that because in the summer learning evidence is a little hard if you never had it before. Plus, if you take evidence, especially as a second year, it opens up some choices like taking certain clinics and doing some stuff. So there's a lot of reasons to do that. Um, there's other subjects. I'm not going to name them, but there are other subjects that are just kind of easier to learn on the bar. And you should take them if you're interested in law school, but it may not really make a difference if you take it or not as far as your bar preparedness. But evidence, yes. And I do teach remedies. I, I Remedies doesn't always show up as a subject, for example, in California, but it almost always shows up as part of a question. Um, and it also helps you kind of contextualize your other subjects, which is one of the reasons I I like teaching it. I'm sure every professor who teaches a class can speak in favor of that class being a good one to take. But generally speaking, if you take a couple bar classes, and then if you do, I mix it up with seminars and clinics because those can be you know heavy, those bar classes. But um, if you take those, it, it keeps you in the game. The bar review, I don't know if you know, but the bar review, they really do take care of you. You know, take a bar review course after you graduate, right? And take it seriously and do what they tell you to do you see graduating from UCLA and taking bar review seriously equals you will pass. They want to thank you guys so much for this podcast. You've provided invaluable advice. Um, you know, even hearing some of this again has made me feel a little bit better for my midterm on Monday. Uh, <laughs> You'll do great. <laughs> any last words for our listeners? Uh, just that, again, that, that sense of giving yourself grace. This is hard it, and it's not you. It, it's hard for everyone. Um, and and just realizing that, you know, a, a, as long as you're kind of trying to diagnose, maybe you're you're in the dark a little bit, but you're when you're trying to diagnose, you're doing good, helpful things. Even if you don't know at the moment they're good, helpful things, uh, keep trying to do that and keep giving yourself those moments of grace. Um, I'll add to that, the flip side of that, it is a myth that if you don't give yourself moments of grace, you're going to benefit scholastically from that. You know, the idea that you could burn the midnight oil and the harder you work, the better you'll do. Not true. The smarter you work, the better you'll do. Uh, so it's about, you know, and part of listening to this is trying to get some tips for that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you should be stopping and doing something else you know, every day. Um, you know, yeah, of course, when finals come, maybe like the week before, it's pretty, let's start thinking about that. But when you're kind of getting through a very long semester, don't fall for the fallacy that I certainly did my second semester, which is the harder you work, the more likely you are to do well and figure it all out. Um, what you might all be doing is working harder and making yourself more unhappy. Um, instead, you know, stop at the end of the day and do other things. Alyssa was talking about, you know, just do other things. Um, it's good for you. And it's also good for your law studies. You know, if it, if it feels like it's an uninterrupted marathon slog, you start to get worse at your studying. So your brain needs to do something different to come back and be good again. So give yourself grace, both because you always should, um, but also because it actually will make you a better law student if that's what you need to motive, to force yourself to turn it off. So have more fun. You'll be a better law student.